Amen. Thanks, Shem. So as you know, we've been uh, in the series called uh, Church Life. And uh, whenever we do a Church Life series, and we do them from time to time, what we try to do is we try to keep in mind what kind of season does God have us as a church in that particular, in that particular time. And then how does God want us to uh, live out church together, loving God, loving each other, loving our, our community. And so we have been talking a lot lately. The underlying theme has been this, this issue of, of unity. It is so incredibly precious. I mean, Jesus, uh, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was pouring out his, his heart to God. And that was one of the main things that he was praying for, is unity of the saints, unity of, of the church. And so this, if this morning we come to, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 3. And, and the truth is, is, if we are going to understand church life at all, we need to wrestle with the question, who am I and why am I here? Those are critical questions. It's an identity issue. Most people view, when it comes to identity, most people get their identity from what they do. That's completely opposite in God's kingdom. Um, people, they live their lives thinking what you do determines who you are. But according to the kingdom of God, who you are determines what you do. So we need to come to grips with who are we? What is our identity? We need to wrestle with that. And so we get to this, um, this passage in, in Ephesians. And, you know, Paul is writing from a dungeon. And he's pretty sure that he's going to be executed. Can, can you imagine if you were locked up and you were on death row, you know that you are going to be executed soon. What would be going through your mind? What state of mind would you be in? I mean, I know, I know what kind of state of mind I would be in if I was facing execution, if my execution was, was imminent. And, and so, you know, Paul, this is, this, this is Paul's situation, and you would expect that his letter to the church in Ephesus would be pretty down. I mean, my, if I was writing a, a letter to Infusion, I was on death row, it would be, it would, it would be dark. <laughs> Very dark. I would not be as encouraging as the Apostle Paul is at all, just like the opposite. What's amazing is in Paul's letter here, um, this, this passage, this, this letter is one of the high points in the New Testament. One of the high points. I mean, it sounds, I mean, when you, when you try to kind of pick up on uh, maybe the kind of attitude or state of mind that he has as you read uh, through the book of Ephesians, it, it sounds like, you know, life is great. He's living large. He's in a mansion. He has everything that, that he needs, and he's celebrating all of God's blessings to him. But in reality, he is locked up on death row, celebrating all that he is in Christ, all that he has in Christ. I mean, if you, if you got a letter from a guy that you know that is on death row, and he were this excited in his letter to you, you would think that he finally snapped, right? That he's lost it. You'd, you'd, you'd be praying for his mental stability. Back at the beginning of, of Paul's letter, when it opens up, Paul got so excited about the glory of God's grace that he goes on for 12 verses in this long run-on sentence without even taking a breath. Now we see Paul get so excited again that he totally interrupts himself. 
You ever do that? You try to say two or three things at the same time and you can't figure out what to say first and so you just interrupt yourself? My wife Shannon does this all the time. It's very entertaining. Here in our text, we see Paul. He's, he's gearing up. He's, he's about to pray for the church in Ephesus. He's going to write this prayer to the church in, in Ephesus. And he's, he's gearing up for it when he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles... And then he stops right there because he gets so excited, he interrupts himself and goes on a 13-verse rabbit trail. I mean, he doesn't get around to praying for them until verse 14. So we can't even look at those verses together. My whole sermon is on Paul's rabbit trail, okay? What in the world is Paul getting so worked up about now? Well, he's all excited about this mystery, how He's, he is so excited about God's great mystery drama. Something is, is happening in the church in Ephesus that is not happening anywhere else. Jews and Gentiles are sitting down together and breaking bread together. Now, I know that doesn't impress you, living in, you know, just multicultural city like, like San Diego, but this was totally completely shocking back then because the Gentiles, they hated the Jews. And the Jews, they hated the Gentiles. There's a preacher by the name of, uh, an author by the name of John Sartell, and he says, it would be the equivalent of whites and blacks eating together in one another's homes in Memphis in 1955. This wasn't happening anywhere else in Ephesus, just in the church. So Paul's about to pray and then he gets personal. I mean, he starts thinking about this mystery. He starts thinking about how this mystery has radically changed his life. How this mystery has radically changed his relationships with, with other people, especially people he spent his whole life despising. He thinks about this mystery, and all of a sudden he's like declaring, I, I finally know who I am now. I know who I am, and I know why I am here. So let me ask you this morning, without being distracted or thinking about anything else, do you know who you are and why you are here? This is critical. It sets the trajectory of our lives. It sets our priorities. It sets our life decisions. Can I just tell you, in my experience, um, most people don't think about that question, even Christians. They just kind of set their life on cruise control, and they just kind of go with the flow, um, and without any real direction, any thought about their identity and who they are. And so you know what happens? When hard times hit, and they always do, when the hard times hit, they lose their joy. The, the joy gets sucked right out of their hearts. When they go through um, prison experiences, they're either filled with anger or crushed in despair. I mean, even if things are going well, even if you have all of your needs being met, everything, you're being more successful than you, than you can ever uh, imagine, you're, you're left empty. And life seems meaningless. 
So I want us to think about four questions this morning. The first two we were, I already mentioned, why am I, who am I and why am I here? And then follow up with uh, the questions um, of, you know, how important is my role? And then the so what question, what difference does it make? Our first question is this, if you're taking notes. Our first question is, who are we? And our first answer is this. We are sinners saved by grace. We are sinners saved by grace. Now, I know that sounds familiar to you. You've heard it a million times. I want you to think about this in a fresh and new way. Don't get stuck in some kind of uh, going through the motions, and I've heard that before, and, and tune it out. Let's think about this in a new way. The Apostle Paul, he knew who he was. And the reason that he knew was because the mystery was revealed to him. And he uses the word mystery four times here. And we usually think of mystery as something that, that is unknown, right? Uh, we, something that, that uh, you can't know it, so it's, so it's a, a mystery. But check out verse 5. It says this. The mystery of Christ has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So this mystery in the New Testament is something beyond natural knowledge. It's beyond natural knowledge, but it has been revealed to us in Scripture through the Holy Spirit. So what is this mystery that that Paul's all excited about? In verse 6, we see there are two parts to it. He says this, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. All right. First, the mystery is this. That God's people are saved through a crucified Messiah. Now, the gospel is in the Old Testament. I mean, it's all throughout the Old Testament. It's not just a bunch of stories about how to be a good boy or good little girl and do this and don't do that. The way that most people read the Old Testament like Aesop's fables. It's all about who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's doing in his kingdom. But people miss the whole point. They could not conceive that the Messiah would be crucified, right? You know what? That doesn't really hit us at all unless we think of it this way, I think. Think of yourself in a life or death situation. And you can't change your circumstances. You are totally dependent on somebody else. And this is the only guy, this guy strapped to a lethal injection table. He is your only hope for life. This is the guy that's going to save me? It it doesn't compute, right? And so it was unthinkable to Saul. Saul was Paul's name before he met Jesus. And he was a leading Old Testament scholar. So that means that he knew the Old Testament inside and out. He believed that the Messiah was going to come to save his people and that the Messiah would save him. But if you asked him, Hey, Paul, why should the Messiah save you? You know what he would have said? He would have said, because I'm a very you know, religious person and, and I diligently obey the law and its commandments like, like you know, good Jews do. And if you asked you ask him, you know, well, who are you? And, and he would have said, well, I'm, I'm a good person. That, that was his identity. And as a result couldn't even imagine a crucified Messiah. He didn't need a crucified Messiah. And the the idea of a crucified Messiah would have been totally blasphemous to him. But then one day, the mystery was revealed to him. 
We see uh, the story in the book of Acts chapter 9 where, where uh, Saul is, is traveling to Damascus to uh, arrest Christians, imprison Christians, to persecute Christians. And in verse 3 it says this, As he neared Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus. This hit Paul like a ton of bricks. I mean, Jesus really was the Messiah. And then what am I doing? It just changed his whole, it changed his, changed his entire life. And over the next, few days, the next few days, Saul came to know, he came to realize that as impressive as his resume was, as awesome of a Pharisee he was, as disciplined as he was, as good as he was at applying biblical principles, he was not a good person. And his only hope was a crucified Messiah. God revealed the mystery of the gospel to him. And as a result, he came to know who he was. He came to realize, this Pharisee of Pharisees came to realize, I am a sinner saved by grace. It just knocked him over. Do you know who you are? You either saw before you met Jesus or Paul after he met Jesus. Ask yourself, I mean, do I know that I'm a sinner? Not just because that's the right answer in your head. I mean, do you know that you are a sinner? Do you know how far we fall short of the holiness that, that God demands? And do you know that our only hope is a crucified Messiah? Maybe not. Or maybe you, you did, but you got wrapped up in going through the religious motions and you just forgot and it was just something you know intellectually. Maybe you're here this morning and say, you know what, I'm not a Christian, but I, I know who, who I am. Then you need to understand that you're just like Saul. And you'll define yourself based on your performance or your family background or your, your possessions or your career, whatever. And it'll let you down. I mean, if you're, if you're good at it for a while, you'll get puffed up in pride. But eventually, you will get crushed in despair. Because the truth is, we can't really know who we are unless God reveals the mystery to us. Maybe, maybe others of you here say, you know what, sure, I, I know, I'm, I'm a Christian, I, I, I grew up in the church, I know the mystery, I know Jesus died for my sins, I just don't get all excited about it. Listen, if, if the mystery of the gospel and his grace, God's grace, if, if it doesn't just grab your heart and lead you to just to radically change your life in such a way that it looks like foolishness to the rest of the rest of the world, then you really don't know the mystery. If you know the mystery, not here, but like right here, it will radically change the way you live, so much so it'll look like foolishness to the rest of the world. Do you know the mystery? What does your life say about that? Look, I, I grew up in the church. I had a pretty good uh, uh, attendance record because my dad was a pastor. But I did not give a rip 
about anything that they were saying or anything that, that they were doing. And every Sunday, I heard that I was a sinner and my only hope was, was the cross of Jesus. And that good news bounced off of my heart like bullets off a rock. I was on the road to destruction, didn't care, thought I was having the time of my life. And even though I could quote to you biblical truth, my heart was just like Saul's. But then I met Jesus. He, he opened my eyes to the, the mystery, not as, not as dramatically as Saul, of course, but God revealed the mystery to me. And, and I was hit by two powerful truths. One, I am a sinner. And two, Jesus is the savior of sinners like me. And now I know who I am. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Do you know the mystery of the crucified Messiah? If you do, it will radically change your whole concept of who you are and how you live. The second question is this. Why are we here? And our second answer is this. We're ministers of the gospel. We are ministers of the gospel. Paul, Paul knew why he was here. He says in, in verse 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister. And by the way, let me just tell you right now, everyone who knows the mystery has been made a minister of the gospel. So if God has opened your eyes to the mystery of the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for you and what he is doing, you know what that means? It means you are a minister of the gospel. That's who, that's who you are. Then in verse 8, we see Paul's specific role, uh, what that looks like for him. And he says that his specific role is to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's how it specifically plays out for, for Paul's life. Now, just to give you a little bit perspective on what that means, because you're oh, that's, that's not even very interesting. Well, let me tell you something. This would be like God sending a retired leader of the Black Panthers as a missionary to the Ku Klux Klan, like out in Santee somewhere, right? <laughs> you know people call it Klan T? Yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> sorry, my, my bad. I, oh, dang, I thought we were far enough away from Santee that I could get away with that one, but apparently not. My, my apologies. <laughs> that's how strange this is so here's the apostle Paul and he absolutely loves everything Jewish he loves everything Jewish he loves Jerusalem he loves the temple he loves the rituals he loves the tradition and he especially loves his people so if you were in charge of a missions organization where would you send Paul I mean, where do you think he would fit? Right, it's a no-brainer. Send him as a missionary to the Jews. I mean, he'd be great, right? But God says, nope, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. He spent his whole life despising the Gentiles. Why in the world would God do that? I don't know, it's a mystery. But you know what? I do know this, God does this all the time. All the time. Look at Jonah. Who did he hate the most? 
Who? The Ninevites. And God sends him to be a missionary to who? (laughs) The Ninevites. Elizabeth Elliot's husband was a missionary that was killed by the Aka Indians. And God sends Elizabeth to be a missionary to who? Aka Indians. So it can happen like this. It can happen like that when you are a minister of the gospel. So let me ask you, do you know why you are here? Do you know? I mean, we need to always be wrestling with that one, to keep it at the forefront of our mind so that it continues to shape our, our lives to, to, glorify, to glorify God. And, and the, the, the truth is, is that you cannot know why you're here unless you really know who you are. When you answer the identity question, your calling in life will flow from that. If you can truly say, I am a sinner saved by grace, then you, you will know your, your calling and you will say, I am a minister of the gospel. In, in light of what God has done for me through Jesus by the power of his spirit, I am willing to serve Christ under any circumstances. I am willing to serve Christ and be a minister of the gospel wherever it is that he has me right now or wherever it is that he's calling me to be. Even if, like Paul, it's out of my comfort zone. You're probably sick of hearing this, so I'm not going to spend much time talking about this at all. But I think it's important to, to bring it up every now and then because a lot of times it's easy for people who are sitting in the chairs, looking at somebody standing up here, saying, he is, you know, he's, he's a pastor. Woo. You know what? That's a bunch of nonsense. I am no different than you, okay? And, and, and that disconnect kind of happens automatically. So, another reminder. I never planned on being a pastor. And neither did I never thought I would be a pastor. And neither did anybody else who knew me. Like, no way. Talk about being out of your comfort zone. I mean, goodness. I mean, this is off the charts for me. And now we have internet access to where we can listen to all, any amazing, you know, really smart you know, winsome, charismatic preachers all over, the, all over the world. I mean, talk about being a, this is off the charts for me. You ever watch that show, The World's Dirtiest Jobs? Over the years, there have been seasons in ministry where any of those jobs looked a whole lot better. But I'm telling you right now, there is nothing else I'd rather do. I mean, it doesn't make sense, but I guess it doesn't have to make sense. It's a mystery. God's called me to be a pastor. And so I better make sure that this gig is not about me. It better be about who Jesus is and what he has done. So, Being a pastor is how I am a minister of the gospel. You are no different than I am. I am no different than you. 
How is God leading you to be a minister of the gospel? In what capacity? Are you chasing that? Are you seeking first the kingdom of God and your role in it? Is that reprioritizing your life, the way you spend your money and, and uh, spend your time? What excites you? What breaks your heart? I want to challenge you to that. God may, God may be calling you into a situation that's outside your comfort zone. And maybe you say, you know what, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, I can't serve the Lord there. I mean, God's got to be calling me somewhere like Maui or something. You know? I think that's where God's calling me. All I can say is, <laughs> welcome to the club. You know? There's a very good chance God's calling you to be a minister of the gospel outside of your comfort zone. God wants to use the power of the gospel through you to break down barriers and to bring reconciliation. And it might mean that you start functioning in such a way that, that you're going to fail, fall flat on your face, and everybody's going to see it. God's grace gives us the courage to, to do something that we're not good at. <laughs> and then he grows us in that. Our third question is this. How important is my role? And our answer is mind-blowing. I am a player in God's cosmic drama. All right. This, this, this was the craziest part of my whole sermon. All right? Paul knew the importance of his role. Even though he was locked up, his hands were tied, literally. He was in chains. Now, you might think this is nuts, but, but check this out. Look at verse 10. I, you don't hear this a lot. I know I don't. I haven't. He says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to who? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is crazy. Picture this cosmic drama. The theater is history. The stage is the world. The, the actors are the church. The writer, the director, the producer is God. And who is the audience? It is the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The angels. Why in the world are the angels watching us? Well, this is what John Stott says. It is through the old creation, the universe, that God reveals his glory to humans. And it is through the new creation, the church, that he reveals his wisdom to the angels. In 1 Peter, Peter is talking about the mystery revealed in the gospel. And he says, even the angels long to look into these things. A literal translation is the angels stoop to look. And they're learning, intently observing the teachings and the actions of God's people. God is teaching the angels through you. <laughs> Does that blow your mind? Let me tell you a little bit about our audience, the angels, okay? Okay. 
They are God's messengers announcing salvation and judgment. They were there to announce Christ's birth. They were there to minister to Jesus after his temptation in the, in the wilderness and during his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were there to roll away the stone and to be the first to announce that Jesus has risen. They were there on the Mount of Olives when our Lord ascended into heaven. And now they're in heaven worshiping the victorious Jesus until they return with him on the last day to gather his people and wipe out evil. But you know what? There is one place where the angels are obviously absent, absolutely silent, and simply spectators of God's mystery drama. The place, the hill called Golgotha. The event, the crucifixion of their creator and Lord. We hear nothing of the angels at Calvary. Because there, God doesn't send his angels to announce salvation. He sends his son to accomplish salvation. He doesn't send angels to bring his judgment. He sends his son to bear our judgment. The angels were silent at the cross, and all they could do is just stand there and stare and wonder at the mystery of a crucified Messiah. They cannot fully understand it. I mean, how is this going to end? So they wait, and they watch, and through you, his church, God is teaching them and revealing his manifold wisdom. Literally, God's many-colored wisdom. I mean, in, in, in the Greek Old Testament, the same word that's used, this is the same word that's used to describe Joseph's coat of many colors. Paul's talking about the multiracial, multicultural people that God is bringing together to reveal the beautifully shaded wisdom of God. And the angels are watching you in God's cosmic drama. A crucified Messiah is making a, a, a diverse people into one new society, into one new family. And one day God will reconcile the whole universe to himself. Do you know how important your role is? Do you think about that? What could be more important than that? Do you have any idea? You know, maybe there are times when you think, you know what? I, I don't really <laughs> matter. I mean, there's so many people in the world, so much brokenness. I mean, let me read another quote to you by... John Stott. I almost cut it because it's a long quote, but it was too good to, to cut. So I'm hoping you can hang in there and pay attention to what I'm reading as we go through this. John Stott writes this. Secular history concentrates its attention on kings, queens, and presidents, on politicians and generals, in fact, on VIPs. The Bible concentrates, rather, on a group it calls the saints, often little people, insignificant people, unimportant people, who are, however, at the same time, God's people, and for that reason, are both unknown to the world and yet well-known to God. 
Secular history concentrates on wars, battles, and peace treaties, followed by yet more wars, battles, and peace treaties. The Bible concentrates, rather, on the war between good and evil, on the decisive victory won by Jesus Christ over the powers of darkness, on the peace treaty ratified by his blood, and on the sovereign proclamation of an amnesty of all rebels who will repent and believe. Again, Secular history concentrates on the changing map of the world as one nation defeats another and annexes its territory and on the rise and fall of empires. The Bible concentrates, rather, on a multinational community called the church, which has no territorial frontiers, which claim nothing less than the whole world for Christ and whose empire will never come to an end. It does not get any more important than that. It, it does not get any more important than that. So our last question is this. What difference does it make? Here's the difference. We are prisoners of Jesus. I'll explain what I mean. Obviously, I mean, this made a huge difference in Paul's life. Paul is, is writing from a Roman prison under the authority of Nero, the emperor. The self-righteous Pharisees had brought charges against Paul, and now he's sitting in prison facing execution. But notice how Paul begins his writing. He doesn't say, I, the, the, I Paul, the prisoner of those stupid Romans. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I, Paul, the prisoner of those self-righteous Pharisee jerks. He doesn't say that either. He doesn't say, I, Paul, the prisoner of that psycho-tyrant Nero. What's he say? He says, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. I'm not here because of the Romans. I'm not here because of the Pharisees. I, I, I'm not here because of Nero. I am here because of Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 13, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. What difference does it make when you know who you are and why you are here and how important it is? It made a huge difference in Paul's life. He says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus. His whole identity has been absolutely transformed after meeting Jesus. You know what? This will make a huge difference in your life as well. You know what? I know that some of you feel like, like you're in a prison of sorts. And you feel like you're trapped by your circumstances, whatever they are. You're not in control of your circumstances. There's nothing that, that you can do to, to change them. Maybe, maybe mistakes of the past by you or someone else against you have put you in a situation that just was not, it was just not part of your plan for your life. And, and, and it's real easy and very natural to, to ask yourself, you know what, why am I in this mess? Why is this happening to me? Well, if you know the mystery of God's grace, you will say, I'm a prisoner for Jesus. I don't understand it all, but I know who I am. I'm here to serve him as a player in this great cosmic drama. 
I don't understand it all, but I know that he does. And I know that he is fulfilling his purposes. And it doesn't depend on me understanding what his purposes are and the specifics of it all. And I will prioritize my time. I will prioritize my money. I will prioritize my, my, my energy. I will prioritize you know, my entire life, everything around that. And I am confident that the author and the producer and the director is in complete control. And there is nothing that can discourage me because I know how the drama ends. Jesus wins. So you heard Paul's story. My question for you is this. What's yours? I mean, what would you say? I mean, how... Will your life be different? If you know the mystery of God's grace, the foundational truth, the most basic truth, is that you are a sinner saved by grace. You are a minister, you are a minister of the gospel. You are a player in God's cosmic drama. You are a prisoner for Jesus. To the glory of God. How is the Holy Spirit leading you today? What is, what is he calling you to do in response to his glorious grace? What have you been putting off or, or, or ignoring? Maybe, maybe you don't give him much thought because you've just been kind of coasting, kind of apathetic, going the flow because he never really kind of wrestled with the idea of who I am, why am I, why am I here? My challenge to you is to wrestle with that and never stop. Constantly examine your heart. Constantly examine your life. Are you living your life to bring glory to God? Or are we messing around with other stuff that's just not even <laughs> that important? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Amen. Would you please bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, so often uh, we don't value your, your word like we should, and we kind of daydream about getting an email or a text from you telling us, you know, the answers to our, our, our questions. <sighs> Help us to just realize that you have already spoken to us through your word. And it is in your word that you show us who you are, what, you're done, what you've done, what you're doing. And that in your word is where we find out who we really are and why we are here. God, I pray for, for our church. In this season where you have us, in these circumstances, with the, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, may we be preoccupied with wanting to glorify you, that we would view ourselves as sinners saved by, by grace, and that we have a role to play in your cosmic drama, not just as a bunch of disconnected individuals, but together as a family in communion with you and, and with one another for your purposes, for the advancement of your kingdom. God, we pray that you would be glorified through us as a church. 
May we constantly remind each other of who we are in you, that our only identity, our true identity can only come from you. And God, I pray, Lord, um, that you would guard us against finding our identity in what we do. God, I pray, Lord, that what we do would be defined by who we are in you. Fill our, as, fill our hearts with relief and joy as we reflect on the fact that, that even though we were your, your enemies, you loved us. You lived for us and died for us. And God, I pray, Lord, that, that you would fill our hearts with courage to trust you, to follow you, to live for you, to become, to, to grow in Christ's likeness as, as we help each other apply the good news um, to each other's hearts. God, I pray if there's anybody here this morning that uh, has never taken that step of, of, of faith, I pray that um, you would open their eyes to the mystery of the gospel. And that you would enable them to trust you as their Lord. That you would enable them to trust you as their Savior, as their Deliverer. That you would enable them to live a life for your glory. God, we pray, Lord, that, that uh, we would live as, as believers, as one trusting the gospel. That we would live lives of repentance and faith. pray this in your name.